And I talk to people all the time who will tell me about family members and or friends that they're praying for. And, and, and these people are often not only not believers, but they're people that seem very close to the gospel, sometimes even hostile to the gospel. And they'll often express their concern, even their worry, saying something like, you know, I'm not sure they'll ever come to faith. And, and, and if they ever do come to faith, how will God bring them to faith? You know, how is it that God's going to reach them? And, and you know, how does God get through? And for many who are there that are not only looking and saying, I'm concerned about these people, but I feel that God has maybe called me to be a part of it, who are willing to embrace the call to share our faith, you know, we not only struggle with that, but we say, if God is to use me to reach this person, then what am I supposed to do? You know, I've shared the gospel before, and they're closed. They maybe even, you know, reacted negatively. And, and I know I'm not supposed to give up, but what am I supposed to do? One of the things that makes this a really interesting question is the fact that many of the people that ask it forget a really important fact. And that is that many of us may be wondering that about our friends, and we forget that years ago, maybe decades ago, we were the ones that were close to the gospel. And there were people asking those questions of us and wondering, how will I ever get through to them? How will God ever speak to them? For, for some of us, you know, that might be true for some. Others of us, like myself, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents accepted Christ when I was four or five. And, and, and apart from that, you know, I've always been raised in a Christian home. But I know enough about my parents. I know it was my parents who were the ones that seemed so close to the gospel. And people would have wondered, how could you ever get through to him? Soon I think about my, my parents. They were raised Roman Catholic. And, and as Roman Catholics, you know, they were very traditional in their, in their worship, they would go to church, but only when they had to, a couple times a year, and really didn't think much about God apart from that. In fact, they were in the midst of pursuing success as the world defines it as kind of their God in life, and, and had very little thought for spiritual things. In fact, the one time that my dad could later remember being confronted with the gospel, his result or his response wasn't openness, it was actually cynicism. Uh, he remembered years later that he, that he, as a young man, was on a sales call, and he had actually brought a trainee with him to show him the ropes. And, and as they showed up for this meeting, before they could get started, the person they were meeting with kind of interrupted and took charge. And he said, okay, young men, before you tell me what you think I need, let me tell you about what you need. And he then began to share the gospel and, and clearly presented the gospel. And at the end of the presentation, he looked at them and said, now, would you like to receive Christ? And the trainee that my dad was with started to say no, and my dad stopped him and said, yes, we both would. And he grabbed him by the back of the shirt and pushed him off his chair, and they both knelt down. And they both received Christ, or prayed, prayed the sinner's prayer. And, uh, and then they made the sale. You know? and, and afterwards, they're walking out, and my dad's friend looks at him and said, do you believe anything that that cook actually said? And my dad said, of course not but I'll convert to anything if it helps me make the sale. Now, that's cynicism. That, that happened. And you look at that and you say, here's someone who's that close to the gospel, you know, that is willing to you know, say anything because he's so cynical about what he hears. How in the world could God ever get through to someone like that? How does God speak to people who seem closed? This morning, we're looking at the second part of this great story of the woman of the well. If you, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to look, listen to the message last week and even read some of the passages because we're going to kind of reference that. But we talked about how this whole story really is about evangelism. It's about understanding how we're to share our faith with those who are non-believers. 
Now, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that call us to evangelism, that teach the importance of evangelism. What's really unique about this one passage is it actually is giving us a model to share our faith. Here you have Jesus Christ, who is himself now approaching a non-believer, someone who's close to the gospel, and he's initiating a conversation, and he's now talking about issues of faith, and he's giving us some principles upon which we can learn and, and do ourselves. And, and what we're going to look at this morning is kind of that second half, where he not only gives himself as a model, but then he turns to his disciples and to all who would follow him afterwards, and he challenges us to do it likewise. And he gives us not only the, his own example, but he points to the example of someone else who learned and lived out these principles. Now, the first point that I want to draw out from this whole passage is something about, we need to see something about the heart of evangelism. And again, we're going to kind of refer back to the first half we looked at last week several times because, it's, because, because that's the root of it, seeing the heart of Jesus Christ. Last week we saw this in John 4.4 4, that it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And when we looked at that, we saw that geographically he actually didn't have to pass through Samaria. He was walking from one place to another, but most Jews at that time would have walked around Samaria, so that when he goes through Samaria, he's taking the path that most Jews would not have taken. So when it says that he had to pass through Samaria, what it's saying is it wasn't a geographic necessity, it was a necessity born on the fact that he knew that there was a divine appointment with this woman at the well. This woman who was a social outcast, who was rejected by her peers, but who was of great value to God. And Jesus went through Samaria because he was pursuing her with a message of grace. And we saw that that's not just a statement about what happened then. It's not a statement about how Jesus looked at her. It's a statement of how God still pursues all of us with a message of grace. And so many of us, as we look back in our life, we can remember times that we were re, re, you know, running from God. But we can now see that God's hand was pursuing us the whole time. It's still the way that God works. There's something else there that we kind of touch base on, and that's what we see in part of that pursuit. Jesus also broke all kinds of barriers, social barriers and, and expectations. See, the Jews at that time were incredibly prejudiced against this group of people called the Samaritans. They would have avoided talking to them. And, and so here you have Jesus and a Samaritan, and, and then he talks to a Samaritan. It's surprising. Not only that, but here's a man who's talking to a woman. And again, it was an area, a time where, you know, where women were, were seen very low on the, so, on the social uh, plane. And for a man to speak to a woman like this was, again, significant. And not only that, but here's a woman who was a social outcast. She's at the well at the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid people. And here you have Jesus who's a, a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. And here you have Jesus breaking all these barriers. And we see the surprise when Jesus speaks to her. Look at what she says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You know, she's surprised. She's like, you know, you shouldn't be talking to me. But what he's doing is he's communicating care and concern and value. To this woman that was not valued by their culture, she's saying, no, God values you. Now, here's something else that I want you to see, though. We didn't talk about this last week. And that is when we see this whole pursuit of the message of grace, there's something really interesting in this story. Let me remind you of the context. Jesus had been walking with his disciples throughout the morning. It's now about noon. They've stopped in the city by this well to stop and rest and get lunch. 
Okay, now let's pick it up in verse 5, and I want you to, to follow this and see if you notice something that's kind of out of the norm. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that jo- Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, worried as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw out water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, do you notice anything? We, we, we read this all the time, and we're so used to it, we may not miss something, or we may not notice something that really is quite unusual. Here you have a group of 13 men. They're traveling together. They stop, and Jesus sends some into the city to get lunch. How many men do you expect to send into the city to get lunch? Two or three, not, thir- not 12. You don't need 12 men to carry 13 lunches. So you look at that and you say, there's something going on here. There's a reason that Jesus sent all 12 of his disciples away knowing that they couldn't be there, they shouldn't be there when he was about to have this discussion with this woman. And I think it's because Jesus knew the prejudices of of his disciples. He was about to break all these cultural and social barriers. He was about to communicate value to this woman who was unvalued, who had felt rejected. And he knew that if the disciples were there and she walked up, you know, he's trying to communicate grace, but their rejection would have would have undermined everything that he was trying to say by his words and by his spirit. He was trying to communicate value, and they would have communicated judgment. They would have thought of her and thought, you know, such a person, you know, he shouldn't be talking to her. And and clearly, such a person could never really be a follower of Christ. You know, look at her behavior, look at her morality. She's rejected by all these, she's a Samaritan. See, but what you've got to realize is is that Jesus looked at that and said, no, she is of great value. And I don't want your prejudices to get in the way. Now, here's the point. When we look at this, we've got to look at this and say, it's not just about how the disciples felt about her. The question we've got to ask, the point of application, is how do we feel about unbelievers in our sphere of influence? Again, remember that this was a woman who had been, was on the cultural outside of that culture. She, morally, everything. She was one that was, you know, the, everyone looked down upon. And every day we interact with people. And some of those people may be people that, you know, that choose a moral lifestyle that are way outside of Scripture, seem very close to the gospel. And, you know, it's real possible, it's real likely even for us to start to have an attitude of judgment and, and condemnation and staying away from those people. And, and what we've got to look at is that Jesus is saying, no, that's not my heart, that's not God's heart. And some of the people that we would think, but they'll never believe they're so closed. Jesus looks at her and says, yeah, she's, she's this close away. All she needs to hear is the gospel. One of the most powerful stories that illustrate this whole picture in the Bible is that of the prodigal son. You know, when we read the prodigal son, we usually think of the dad and the one son, but we've got to realize it's not about one son, it's about two sons. You have two sons. The one son who ran away and the other that stayed home. And, and it's a parable primarily about not only the character of the love of the father, but contrasting the love of the father with their judgmentalism of the older son. So after the son prodigal returns, the father embraces him and has a feast and welcomes him, but the older son becomes angry. Not only did he not share his father's love and grace for his brother, he actually resented it. And in the last scene of the story, the younger son is inside the home and enjoying the feast with the father, fellowship with the father, and the older son is outside resenting it and really cut off from his relationship with his dad. 
And we've got to look at this and you say, this woman was the least likely to believe. And what we see is that Jesus is saying, this is my heart for unbelievers. And he's calling us to say, there are people that we interact with, the people that we might want to reject because they're rejecting God, but God doesn't reject them. The gospel is a story of God pursuing people that are running away from him and he does it through his people. And so the question is, whose heart do we have? Do we have the heart of Jesus or the disciples? Do we have the heart of the father or the brother of the prodigal. See, we not only see something of the heart, but we also see something really significant here about the importance of evangelism. Now, this is really beautiful. The, the most, most obvious part is something that we kind of again touched on last week, and that's the importance to the unbeliever. See, Jesus comes to this woman who is not a believer, who is not a seeker, who is not open, and he begins to reach out to her, and, and she starts to, which, first of all, she's drawing water, and he turns that into a discussion. He asks her to, walk, take, you know, to take up water for him, and then he turns that into a metaphor, talking about living water. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, it is, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he's using this metaphor of living water. He says, he says what you need is a relationship with God. Salvation is this relationship with God, and, and each of us are created with this, this core thirst, with this need for, for something that, that's at the core of our being. And if you find that, you will find something that will satisfy that thirst. See, it's something that everybody craves. We all have it. And he's saying the living water is something that satisfies the deepest thirst of our soul. It's something that we need. And, and what you see is that all of us, because we have this need, try to satisfy it with something. Even people that don't have a relationship with God are trying to find something. And we see this played out here in this whole story. When she comes back and she says in verse 15, well, give me that water. You know, okay, if, if you've got this living water and, and he looks at her and says, okay, well, then go find your husband. Bring your husband to me. And you look at that and you say, where does that come from? You know, that seems like, again, non, not, not, not related at all. And, and what we saw last week is that, no, that actually is related. She's saying, I want the water. And he says, okay, let me point out the place that you're looking for it. You're looking for significance in men. You're looking for significance in relationships. And so you've gone from man to man to man to man, and now you're with you know, five husbands, you're with another one now, and you're trying to find significance in your relationships, and you keep having to come back because it's not satisfying you. And the fact is, all of us have this God-shaped void, and the question isn't whether we're trying to fill it, the question is what are we trying to fill it with? And so many of us can look in our lives and we have so many things that we're chasing after this and relationships or sex or pleasure or job or, you know, or wealth or all these things that we try to fill it with. And you know what? They all satisfy for a short period of time, but we have to come back and drink again. And in fact, it's again like salt water that we not only need to come back, but we're more thirsty. It doesn't satisfy us. And what we have to realize, no, we have this God-shaped void in our life and, and it, is, it is shaped only to be filled by a relationship with God. Only when we have a relationship with God will we find the thing that will satisfy our deepest thirst. And see, again, for each one of you here, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, the message of the gospel is that God is pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. And whether you have been 
looking for him or running away from him. The fact is he's drawing you to himself. And he says, I want a relationship with you. And when you find that, you will find the one thing, the only thing that will bring satisfaction that will last. Living water that you don't need to keep going back to. And are you willing to accept Christ and embrace that relationship he calls you to? Now, here's the surprising part. Because clear that, that's, that's there, that's clearly there for the unbeliever. But he also teaches us something about the importance of evangelism to the believer. The importance of sharing our faith and how it impacts us who have a relationship with Christ. Now, let me point this out. Again, this is, this is one of this incredible ideas that, that I'd never seen before. And, and then when you see it, you can't unsee it. Here's what I want you to see. What has been the whole theme of his discussion with the woman? Water. That you have a thirst, and if you find this thirst, it will satisfy you. Now look in the same story. We're not done with the story. In the same story, now he looks to his disciples, and look at what he says in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now here's what I want you to realize. In the same story, you have two metaphors, water and food. And he looks to the unbeliever and says, I provide water and you need this water to satisfy your thirst. And he now looks to the disciples and even saying himself and he's saying, and this is the food. If you need water to satisfy the thirst, you need the food to satisfy the hunger. And he's speaking to her and he's saying, the core need, the foundational need, you got to start with water. You need this relationship with God that's essential to life, as essential as it is, to, you know, water is to your physical life, it is to your spiritual life. It's the only thing that will satisfy your deepest longings. And now he looks to his disciples who have, have that water, who have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, now I want you to understand that once you've had that, now you need the food to satisfy your deepest hunger. It fills a hunger. And what is that hunger? What is that food that, you know, it's food that fills our deepest hunger. I think the hunger that he's talking about is the hunger to live a life of significance. To live a life that matters. To live a life that, that, that actually, you know, we look back and we say, there's a reason that I'm living. It's amazing that even people will talk about kind of the, the despair that's in our culture and the suicides and the drugs and these deaths by despair. And they'll talk about this is a, a, you know, prominent, a huge problem in our country that's growing. Do you think it's at all related to the fact that we're telling people that they're not created by God, that they're just the result of evolution, that there's no purpose in life, there's no meaning, they have no significance? When we tell people that they have no meaning in life, there's no reason to live life. The fact of the matter is that we all want to live a life that matters. And we see this throughout our contemporary culture. You have people that are living for something of significance. The problem is we don't know what significance is. Does it mean that we're famous? Does it mean that we're wealthy? Does it mean that we you know, get on TV? Is that significance that matters? Or we make heroes of people, our athletes, and we, we try to accomplish something. And boy, we, we look at guys like LeBron James and Baker Makefield, and boy, if they win a, a, a trophy for Cleveland, well, that matters, that lasts, that's significant. But does it? Think of even in our culture, you know, we love superhero movies, and, and, and why, is, why is it that we like those? 
See, it's not just about special effects. It's something about the story that draws people. It's something about the story that we look at these people that are fighting great battles to save the world. And that's ultimate significance. And if, and if I could even live that vicariously and, and say, boy, if, if I had those powers, if I had that challenge, I'd like to think that I would do that. That I could live a life that would, would be that significant. You see, Jesus is saying here, I'm calling you to live a life of ultimate significance. And you have a relationship with me and you have the thing that is at the core of your deepest satisfaction. But now that you have that, that's not the end, that's the beginning. See, the water tells you that you matter to God. The water, this is this woman who didn't realize that she mattered, and it's no, no, you matter to God. I am pursuing you, that you matter so much that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for you. It's a story of God's love and pursuit. You matter. The food tells you not only that you matter, but your life matters. That your life matters. I think of even, you know, the Bible talks about adoption. And it's not only that, as, you know, that the water is that we are adopted out of the brokenness. We're adopted into a family of God. But now you have this new name and you have a new purpose. And, and, and as a good parent, I want to teach my children to live a life that succeeds. And God calls us to live a life of significance. We're not only saved from our sin, we're saved to a life of significance. And so that's what he's calling us to. To live a life that matters, that live a life that's going to have an impact that, you know, yeah, when the trophies go away, when the wealth, you know, fades, when all that's there, that we live a life that has eternal significance, that we've laid up treasures in heaven that last, that we can live a life that says, I know that I'm living a life. I feel good about my life. At the end of my life, I've, I, I feel good about what I've lived for. Now, we might look at that and say, okay, well, I know that, but we're still struggled because we don't know how to do that. How do I share my faith? And I feel overwhelmed. And look what it teaches us about the foundational message of evangelism here. You see, what it's teaching us here is that we often get confused because we're, I don't know how to answer questions. And what if, you know, if, if people ask me this, and I've not ever been trained to share, they'll memorize all the right verses. And, and so we're afraid because we're afraid we don't know what to say. We need to realize that what Jesus is saying here through this story in his example and through the woman that we're going to see in a moment is that the core message, it's all about Jesus. It's about a relationship with him. That's it. And even with her, you know, you look at it, I don't know everything that Jesus knows. Well, she goes to try, starts to get off track. You know, Jesus starts to tell her and he says, well, you know, she's, you know, he says, well, what, let me ask you a question. You know, I know the Jews worship here and the Samaritans worship here and where should we worship? And she starts asking theological questions. She's trying to go all over the place. But what does he do? He comes back to the water. He comes back to himself. He comes back to, he doesn't try to answer all the questions. He says, oh, let me go back to here. I am the Messiah. He goes back to speaking the gospel to her. He's saying there's living water that comes through me. The grace is because of me. Yeah, and there's all these temples, but ultimately the time is coming and it's now come. You'll worship in spirit and truth because of me. My friends, we've got to realize our message isn't about morality. It's not about whether right or wrong. It's, that's part of the message. It's not about a philosophy, although it's in there. It's not about doctrinal debate, although that's part of it. It's, that's not the message. The message is about Jesus Christ about God loving us so much that he sent his son to come and live a perfect life and to die on the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. It's about a, you know, all the other religions are saying about, okay, you know, here, let me show you how to find God. Christianity is about God that said, I came to find you. It's about Jesus Christ. 
And when we look at that, we've got to realize we can't get distracted from that. Look at the woman. Now, she goes and she believes and she, you know, she goes to share with other people. Look at her message. Verse 27, the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And no one said, why do you, you know, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. What was her message? Just Jesus Christ. She didn't get into all the details. She just said, come see this, this man, this, this person that has changed my life. My friends, we've got to realize that there is a temptation of distraction, and people will come and they'll try to distract us, and those distractions scare us because we feel like we don't know what to share. And again, you see this in the woman, you know, where she comes in verse 22, you know, what about where do you should you worship? And Jesus doesn't get distracted by this. He moves to the real issue. And I want to tell you, what about all these people that ask questions? I want to... Tell you, most people that I've learned over the years that ask the hard questions, they're doing the same thing this woman was doing. Why was she asking about where do we worship? Because she really wanted to know that? Because she said, I've got to get this question answered before I understand the Messiah? No, because Jesus was getting really uncomfortably close. And she is saying, okay, let me go to all these distractions. Let me talk about theology so we don't talk about me and we don't talk about my heart and we don't talk about my relationship with God. And what we've got to realize is we can get into all kinds of distractions about this question and about this morality. And what about this? And did Adam have a belly button? You know, think about that one. Uh, you know, we can do all these things. And, and the fact is, is that none of them really deal with the gospel. They're distractions. And what you see Jesus doing is saying, let's go back to the core. What you see the woman saying is, I'm just going to stay to the core about Jesus Christ. And what about the people that ask questions? One of the things that I've learned to even do I've learned to see most people, if I answer the question, they just have another one. You know what I'm learning to do is, as I'm learning to ask them, let me ask you this. If I could answer all your questions, if I could prove to you that Jesus Christ was God, if I could prove that the Bible was real, would you believe in Jesus? And usually they want to get into another discussion. Oh, well, let's see. let me just ask that question. And instead of arguing it, just let me ask you that question. Let's think about it, and I'll walk away. Because at the core of the matter, what they're really saying, usually it's, it's not, these are the questions I'm worried about, is that I don't want to deal with God. And so I'm saying, if God were real, would you embrace him? Is it that you're having doubts about whether God's real or whether you're having doubts about whether you submit to God if he is real? And so walk away, let the Holy Spirit work. We're going to see that in a moment because it's so vital to this whole idea. We're going to see this in, in, in understanding even the practice of evangelism and what's being taught here. See, look what it says in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Now he switches metaphors. He says, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see in the fields are white in the harvest. Now what is the white in the harvest? You have the Samaritan has gone into the city and you have people coming back to hear about Jesus. That's the white that's the harvest. You have people that are there. What does he say then? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower may rejoice, to, the reaper and sower may rejoice together. You're about to reap. You're about to, to, to reap the benefit of work that other people have done. Who's done the work? The woman. She's the one that's gone and shared this. 
For here is the saying holds true. One soaps and another reaps. I send you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into the, uh, entered into the labor. Now here's what he's talking about. He's talking about this whole idea of this picture of sowing and reaping. And when we look at this, we've got to realize that, you know, that there's a picture here that's amazing. There's really two, three parts of farming. There's those that sow, that plant the seed. At the end of the thing, there's those who reap or harvest the seed that's grown. And then there's everything in between. And the farmer could do a little bit, pulling weeds and things like that, but the farmer can't make it rain. The farmer can't make the seed grow. You can't plant it and say, well, grow, you know, I'm going to dance or do whatever. You know, you can't do anything with that. The fact is that most of what happens and from the planting to the harvesting is done by the miracle of nature, the miracle of God. That's part of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, God, I'm calling you. Some you go and you're going to sow. And there'll be times that we're going to interact with people. And part of our job is just to sow, to share the truth, to tell them about Jesus, to to share the basic message, not to argue of the faith. People aren't argued to faith. People are loved to faith. Recognize that it's, it's our job to share the gospel. Whose job is it to change their mind? Whose job is it to bring someone to saving faith? Whose job is it to convict and 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 to change a heart? The Holy Spirit, can you do that? Can I do that? You know, a lot of times we sit there and we say, I can't do that, and I don't know how to give. We're taking way too much credit. Just go out and sow and leave it up to God, and God will grow, and then, then, you know, God's job is to grow and do all that, and, and then one day, those seeds that we planted that seem to be so close and so hot, you know, so close, so hostile, if we continue to plant and leave room for God to work, one day he brings those most unlikely people to faith, and then some of us have the opportunity of harvesting, of reaping. And it would be silly for us to sit, you know, sit there and say, well, because I don't say it growing, because I can't make it grow, I'm going to call to do anything. No, God's called us to, first of all, think of all those people you interact with, and first of all, just go sow. Share the gospel, you know, look for opportunities, invite them to church, just share. Tell them you're praying for them. Put them on the wall on the week of prayer. Pray. And then leave room for God. And pray for that opportunity. And and if God brings that opportunity where they come and they say, I need to know more about your faith. Be ready if God puts you there to harvest. But don't be discouraged if that doesn't happen. Because most of the time, how many times have you gone out and you planted a seed and you went out and harvested it the next day? So why should you be discouraged if you share the gospel with someone and they're closed and they don't respond right that moment? That doesn't happen. I mean, it's really rare for that to happen. The first time you share the gospel, that they're open, most of the people that we share the gospel with, they're going to be closed. So I said, God's calling me to plant. God's, God, God's calling me to be patient. And then I sit back, and, and you know what? Sometimes you plant that seed, and it is immediate. That's really rare. Sometimes you plant that seed, and you see it within a couple months. And sometimes it's a really slow-going seed, and it takes years. It takes decades. And, but God's a miracle-working God. And don't get discouraged. Don't give up because you don't have what it takes. Of course you don't have what it takes. Because it's not your job to grow the seed. It's your job to plant the seed. And when God gives you the opportunity to harvest the seed. And what is the planting of the seed? What is the core message? It's a really, really simple message. It's not that you need to know all the theology and all these things. It's 
The simple message is simply to say, I invite you to come and see. See, it's not only what he did, but then he points the disciples to an example of someone who lived it out. And what is the example? It's the woman at the well. When you think about anybody that you would say the least likely example, the least likely evangelist, it would be this woman. This woman was a Samaritan. All her theology was wrong. She would have been rejected by the culture. No one looked up to her. She didn't have any authority in the culture. Everyone looked down at her. And she's this brand new believer in Jesus Christ. And how in the world could God ever use her? But God did because she went in and she said, I met this man, Jesus Christ, and he changed my life. Come and see. Verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And again, what was that testimony? It wasn't a theological argument. It wasn't answering all the questions. It was simply, come and see a man who told me everything that I did. Can this be the Christ? And what happens is they come and see, and then they're said at the end, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. At first they came because of her, but then they came and saw, and because of what they saw, then God spoke to them. And, and that seed that was planted grew, and it harvested, and now they're said, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. Now let me close by trying to make this practical, applying it to our lives and our relationships. And I started by asking, how does, how does God get through to, and reach a person that seems so close to the gospel? How does he reach a person like who my dad was? Who, when confronted with someone who was trained in evangelism and shared the gospel clearly, my dad's response was cynicism. That didn't reach my dad, but God used someone to reach my dad. And he did reach my dad, and the result was not only that my dad came to faith, but my dad's life was changed over time. Our family's life was changed over time. His whole family came to faith. Our lives were changed, including me. And many, and, and by God's grace, our family's been used to influence other people. I've shared part of the story before, and I want to share the whole story. See, one of my dad's best friends was a man named Whit Ewing. On Easter Sunday, about 50, 51 years ago, Whit was at our family house, and uh, they were enjoying Easter afternoon, and suddenly Whit turned to my dad, and he says, we're going to church today. And my dad's like, yeah, right. You're like, that's funny. That's a good joke. No, and Whit says, no, we're going to church you're going to church with me. And my dad says, I'm not going to church. I'm not shaved. I'm not. And he says, Whit says, you're going to church. And he literally picked him up and carried him up the stairs. And he told him, either you can go get changed or you can't, but you're going to church. Now that's a pretty unusual, aggressive evangelism strategy. That's what happened. And my dad says, okay, well, I'll get changed a little bit. And so he went to church with his friend. And so they go to church. And in that service, the pastor presents the gospel. And, and Whit Ewing you know, they give an altar call at the end and invite people that want to follow Christ to come forward and Whit goes forward. Now there's a part of the story I didn't know until just recently. See, I learned the story because last month Whit passed away. And the pastor who was there, Dave Burnham, came up and did the funeral and, and at the funeral, Dave shared some parts of the story from Whit's perspective I didn't know. See, what I didn't know is that Whit had in the previous couple months made a profession of faith in Christ. That people had built a relationship with him, he had, he had accepted Christ. And then he looked at that and he thought, on Easter Sunday, that's the day that I wanna to come to church and publicly declare my faith in Christ. I wanna let people know that I'm a Christian. 
And not only that, but he said, I want to not only come to church, but I want to make sure that I bring my best friend because I want my best friend to come and meet the Jesus that's changed my life. And so he invited his best friend and his best friend said, no. And he said, no, you're coming because, and this is my plan. And what was interesting is that when Whit came forward, and he goes and he talks to Dave, and Dave says, why did you come forward? And, and Whit looked at him and said, well, I made this profession of faith, and today I want to make it public. Now, Dave didn't know that Whit had brought a friend. My dad knew nothing about what was happening. All he knows is that his friend got up and went forward, and then part of what they did at that service is afterwards, they, the people went forward, went into a side room to talk and pray. And my dad's looking at this and saying, the service is over, and where's my friend? And he literally goes up after the service and he finds the pastor and he said, I came with a friend and he went forward. What did you guys do with him? So I got to find him. If no other reason, he drove me here. I got to get home. He had no idea. In a Catholic church, they didn't do these things. But what happened is that Whit was saying, this Jesus has changed my life. He didn't know right theology. He didn't know how to answer the questions. All he knew is that this Jesus has changed my life and, and I want to bring my friend to tell him, come meet this Jesus that has changed me. And so then my dad met not only the, the pastor, but he met some other people. And, and some of those other people began to befriend them because they said, okay, we want to be a representative to this person and his family that's closed and, and tell them about this Jesus that has changed my life. And so there were people like Harold and Delane, Delane Sigenthaler that befriended them and, and invited them into our home and, and became our family friends. And they loved our family and they invited us to see this Jesus Christ. And my dad at that point was open. My mom was closed and hostile. But even then, it was a better part of the year before my dad eventually came to Christ. And my mom was like, okay, I'll go to church because you tell me I have to. And, and it was another year before she came to Christ. And then over time, we all did. Now, how is it that God worked? It wasn't great, a great program. It wasn't you know, someone who was trained in evangelism. It wasn't any of that. It was a friend who said, I have met this Jesus Christ. Come and see this one who's changed my life. See, that's how God works. And that's what he calls each one of us to. And if we think of evangelism as this program and we've got to know all these things and all these answers, and well, if somebody has a lot of answers, you can recognize, you send them to me. You know, you say, go talk to the pastor, answer your questions. You know, that's why I'm here to back you up. But really, most of the time, the questions are just distractions. And they may walk away and be hostile, and, but just continue to invite them and just say, come and see this Jesus who has changed my life. Because what happens is when people, when followers of Christ are willing to do that, God uses that to in time plant a seed and, and then in time grow that seed and in time that seed by the miracle of God becomes a life that's transformed. And he not only does that, but then when we do that, we have the privilege of finding not only the, the water that satisfies our thirst, but to suddenly find something in life that's a food that satisfies this hunger of significance that we have the chance to invest in relationships. And it's amazing, Whit at the end of his life was a man that accomplished so much. This was a guy that built these great things. And, but you know what his family talked about was the people that he led to faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you live, talk about a man who lived a life of significance, all the things that he accomplished and a national, he was a national you know, leader and doctor and helped inventing processes. And, but the things that matter is ultimately the great internal significance spiritually of influencing people to Christ. And many of us can't do the great things of the superheroes and, you know, we're not nationally known doctors, and, but all of us have friends that God has put in our sphere of influence. 
We may not be trained to answer every question, but all of us can say, come and see this Jesus that I've met that's changed my life. And when we do that, all of us can live a life that, that matters of eternity, that transforms not only lives, but destinies. We'd be faithful to that. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.